I was asked this past week, what are, what are your methods for preaching? And I would have said years ago, I, I would read a passage and then I would, I would come to a thought and that thought would be where I camped out. And then I would, I would use, I would camp out and my message would be the thought that I came to, the conclusion I came to, and then I'd use this to support my thought. And God has shifted that drastically over the past five years. And my method has become, just so you're aware, I read the passage we're going to go through on a Sunday morning 30 or 40 times before I ever write a note down about it. For me, that's, that's had to become the rhythm because I can come up with something creative to say on my own and uh, I could probably stand up here and creatively speak to you about something without using the Bible at all. I don't say that braggadociously. I actually say that to my shame because in my... In my 13 years of past, or my 14 years of pastoral experience, I've probably done that before. But what was what's been so life giving is I have notes up here. I was telling Jim this morning I have notes up here because if I don't have notes, my ADD will take me down pathways, and we won't actually get through everything that that I think we need to get through today. But God has has sunk these words deep into my heart. They they feel like I've digested them. I feel like I they become a part of me. And so I've tried to read this and know what it says and study it, and that's whenever I feel like, okay, I, have, I need to write down some of these things because my brain is just so soaked full of information from this chapter. So we're in Acts chapter 14 today. If you want to turn there, it's page uh, 637 if you're using the Bible in front of you, Acts chapter 14. Last week we saw Paul and Barnabas start an active ministry within the Gentile populace. So there's this shift that happens, a monumental, can we even say a watershed moment in the life of the gospel moving forward, and it's whenever Paul uh, compares himself to what Isaiah prophesied about, and we see that in verse 47 of chapter 13, and in prophecy says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So whenever Paul starts ministering and focusing his time and attention in on ministering and taking the gospel to the Gentiles, for some reason that caught the Jewish population off guard. Why did it catch them off guard? Isaiah had prophesied that this is exactly what needed to happen and was going to happen. And Paul says, I am who Isaiah was prophesying about. And so he's this watershed moment where the emphasis of preaching and teaching is actually going to shift towards the Gentiles. The promises of God were always made to the Jewish people. So the Jewish people took great pride and honor in that. When Jesus died and resurrected and the veil was torn from top to bottom, giving all of humanity access to a holy God, that changed and shifted things drastically for how the gospel was going to move forward. So this is a big shift. And just like every other shift we've seen in the New Testament, those who are deeply embedded in the former way of understanding it don't like it. <laughs> they don't like it. You don't have to raise your hand here, but I wonder how many people would call themselves creatures of habit. So if someone comes in and says, this is how we do things now, you would bristle at that. Like if all of a sudden I started putting, I, I, I learned early on that, uh, that the house that I live in is not my domain. It's my wife's domain. And what I mean by that is she has a better eye for a layout. She has a better feel for where things should be. So I don't come home and rearrange the furniture. 
any man in there brave enough to just come home and rearrange the furniture someday? I don't go into the kitchen and like say, the silverware should be in this drawer, so I moved it. Right? We don't like change, and sometimes we don't like change because we just don't like change, and sometimes we don't like change because we're so deeply ingrained in a way of doing something that any other way presented to us just doesn't feel right. You might even be able to present to me an option that makes better sense, and I still would bristle at it. I worked uh, at a sawmill once uh, for two years, and part of my job wasn't just milling down lumber. Uh, it was unloading trucks and, and milling down lumber, and it was also making shipping pallets. And the guy who formerly owned this, this sawmill, uh, when he sold it to the guy that hired me, he came back to work there uh, for a season, and uh, we had figured out a way to make these pallets for this sign company, and uh, we, we averaged about 14 seconds per pallet with this jig we had made. You just throw all the wood down and you just pound the nails together and then we flip it and go to the other side. And we were on average about 14 seconds to make a pallet. Well, when he saw us doing that, he came over and told us we were doing it wrong. And we needed to do it his way. So we were like, all right, Lane, what's your way? And he showed us and it took us two and a half minutes to make one pallet his way. Like, it doesn't make any sense. So he was the boss at the time. So he keeps telling us and both of us, the guys that worked there were like, no, we're not doing it that way. We know you're the boss, but this doesn't make any sense. We can get the whole order done almost in the amount of time it takes one, month, one pallet. And, uh, and when the owner got there, he saw us like arguing over this, and he came over, and he had a talk with Lane, and Lane got mad, and he quit. But he, he couldn't get past the fact that he had developed his way of doing that. He had gotten the customer. He had, he had developed a way of doing it. And now these young whippersnappers, as he called us, literally said those words, uh, came in and were changing how to do everything. Well, we didn't. We just, we just took our, what our boss had told us and tried to make a more expedient way of getting the job done. But he just could not get past the way. This is the way we do it. This is the way we do it. That's the mindset of the Jewish leaders of the day, just so you know. The mindset is that's not how we do things. And then they actually can take this. Have you ever heard people do this? They take this book and they find some passage to support their argument. They don't talk about the holistic nature and the grace of God and the main character in Scripture is Jesus. They find one passage and they say, you shouldn't do it. And then they live in that law. So now all of a sudden grace comes into society and it's starting to capture people's attention. Grace is starting to capture people's hearts. Grace is starting to capture people's convictions. And grace is moving people closer and closer to Jesus. It's, it's, it's rocking the establishment. We ended all of this by seeing that because of that, there was all kinds of persecution that was coming these guys' way. So as the disciples, it says in plural form, as the followers of Jesus were expanding, the church was growing like crazy. As that was happening, more persecution was coming down on them. What we saw at the end of chapter 13 is verse 52 when it says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So what we see here is that Paul and Barnabas in chapter 14, they head down to Iconium. It is, a, it is a Gentile territory. We start by seeing Paul and Barnabas, they get to Iconium and they immediately start preaching and teaching in the synagogue. 
That's what we see happen at the beginning of chapter 14. Now, there's something substantial in that that I want us to see, that even though Paul has admitted that he's making this shift, this active shift of reaching out to Gentiles, even in these Gentile territories, what is in the center of town? A synagogue. Who goes to synagogues? Jews. But in the courtyards where teaching can happen... There are also people within earshot of this. And so Paul makes it a, a, a strategy, and we see this play out time and time again, that when he gets into a place, into a town, he doesn't just stand next to a tree and draw a crowd. He goes where the crowd already is gathered, where there's already a familiarity that someone is going to stand up and teach, and he goes to the synagogue. Because if he were to say, come over by this tree, I have something to say, he might just be some weirdo that's out there talking next to a tree. But when people go to the synagogue, they're expecting someone to teach. And they already have some familiarity with what's happening. So this also shows that Paul has not abandoned any work to the Jewish people. He hasn't said, I'm working with Gentiles, I have no love for the Jews. That's not what he says. His actions prove that his emphasis is going to heavily shift to making sure that the Gentile population understands they have access to God. And he will spend as much time as he can. But he's not going to spend, listen, this is important. He's not going to spend an inordinate amount of time trying to convince stubborn people that they're wrong. He's not going to spend an inordinate amount of time trying to open the page of this word to win an argument with religious zealots. He's going to spend his time invested in where a hunger and a thirst for righteousness exists. That's where he's going to invest his time. And so that's what he does. But I just wanted to point out to you that it's important to note that he does go to a synagogue. He has not written off the Jewish people. There are those on both sides that didn't like the message of what he's saying. There are those on both sides Jew and Gentile like that do not like the message, and they stir up people, they stir up the pot, and that's actually, the, the ter- interpretation literally comes down to that, stir up the pot, like you're stirring things up. There's sediment in the bottom, you're stirring it up. We were at the beach this year, and uh, the waves were coming in nice and calm. This was back in August. The water was 78 degrees. It was like the perfect beach day. The kids were playing in the ocean. And when high tide came in, these huge waves came in. And the water, by the way, was like this emerald green. You could see the whole way to the bottom. We were catching these like sand crabs. It was awesome. And then when high tide came in, it came in with cold water and rippled waves. And every, that water wasn't clear anymore. It wasn't clear anymore. Why? Because something had come in, something more powerful had come in and stirred it up, right? Stirred up the waters and it wasn't clear anymore. And so that's exactly what's happening here. People are saying, we don't like what they're having to say. We're anti that. And we don't care whether you're a Gentile or a Jew. We're just anti-Paul and we want you on our side. So they start stirring things up and this, this word gets to Paul and Barnabas. Hey, listen, they're on their way to find you and they're going to stone you to death. Now, there are times in Paul's ministry where we see him just stand and take the punishment, but this time he decides to flee. But it says in uh, verse 5 of chapter 14, I'm sorry, verse 6 of chapter 14, they learned of it, they learned of this plot, and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycanea, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. 
Essentially what's happening here is they're not running in fear. They're going to where the soil's better. They're going to where people are more prone to hear the message. We're going to see them circle back here, uh, but I just wanted to point that out. Now, there's an interesting thing that happens in this next passage, and, uh, but before we do that, I want to make something abundantly clear. And I think it's important that we wrestle with this reality, if we haven't already, and it's this. The gospel is disruptive. The gospel is disruptive. By its nature, it disrupts. Because the gospel comes into a messy situation and provides the fix. But for the fix to be able to be enacted, a choice has to be made to trust it and to do the hard work of the fix doing its job. The reason that people are anti-Paul's message is because it's telling them they're wrong. Raise your hand if you love being told you were wrong. Raise your hand if someone has said to you, you were right, and you made them repeat themselves. Yeah, right? The very few times I've won a marital argument, I can remember one time in the car, she said, no, you were right. And it was was very trivial, and I was like, say it again. (laughs) This doesn't happen very often. I need to revel in the moment. Say it again. She was like, no. So people don't like being told they're wrong, right? We're, We're not the kind of people that like being told that we're wrong. But the gospel tells us we're wrong. The gospel tells us we're broken. The gospel tells us we're we're just a mess. The gospel tells us we have nothing of value to offer this world. The gospel tells us we don't have enough talents, treasures, time, education, wealth, anything to approve us. No matter how good we perform, no matter how many accolades we get, no matter how awards we may win, No matter how hard we work or how fast we move up the ladder, the gospel tells us none of that matters. That's disruptive, right? See, the word of God tells us the gospel is is, is offensive to those who don't believe. The good news of Jesus is offensive to those who don't believe. But it's offensive because it's stepping into our reality and reminding us and pointing us to our brokenness. Nobody likes to look at their brokenness. We spend a lot of time in our society hiding, covering, covering our brokenness, hiding from it, pretending like it doesn't exist because we can't be vulnerable. The gospel is disruptive. It shakes us to our core. And like I said last week, the gospel comes in and points us to our true treasure. Nate said it earlier too. When we treasure something bigger than ourselves, we treasure something eternal, when we treasure Jesus above all else, we don't have to live in fear that our treasure here on earth will be taken from us. We by nature are self-preservationists. We by nature are all about self-protection. 
We by nature will not be completely honest with one another because either it's not our business or we don't want to offend or I can't trust you or I don't know what you'll say if I tell you that or if I, if I divulge who I really am to you, you will run in terror. You, don't, you, you, you can't handle my mess. But the gospel comes in and says, that's not true. The gospel comes in and says, you are broken. You are a mess. You might as well just admit it to the people around you. Yeah, you've done horrendous things. So has everybody else. Because if you haven't been Jesus, you've done horrendous things. That sentenced you to an eternity apart from God. And an eternity apart from God, no matter where it is, no matter what it looks like, whether there's burning sulfur and fire and demons or not, if you are absent from God for all eternity, that is hell. John Piper once posed the question, if you could have the grandeur and splendor and all the promises of heaven, but Jesus wasn't there, would you still want to go? Because an eternity without God is hell. The other stuff makes it worse, don't get me wrong, but an eternity without God is hell. And that's what we are destined to without Jesus. The gospel comes in and reminds us of that. The gospel comes in and says that you have access back to God. But you have to realize why you, need, why you needed Jesus. Because you sinned. You broke the law. You distanced yourself from God. You chose to be something that God never intended you to be. And Jesus stepped in and took the punishment in your place. You deserve to die on the cross. And you would have stayed dead had that happened. Jesus stepped in and took your punishment for you because he was the only one that could absorb an eternity worth of sin. He took it, he died, and he rose again. And in so doing, he's the only entity in the known universe that could ever have or ever will be able to conquer sin and death. And that created a pathway or a bridge back to God. That's Paul's message to the church it's offensive. See, that's why, church, to take a little side note, that's why sin is such a big deal. Whether it's a little white lie or a big ugly thing that we're afraid to confess, that's why sin is a big deal because little white lies, they put Christ on the cross. Sin is a big deal, and that's Paul's message is that sin separates us from a holy God. And when sin separates us from a holy God, we are eternally separated from a holy God unless someone intercedes on our behalf. And Jesus did that. This Messiah that you've read about, this is what he says to the Jewish community, this Messiah that you've read about, that you've said is coming, has already come and you killed him. But he rose again, and he's alive and active. Paul says, I've seen him with my own eyes. It blinded me. For three years, I sat at his feet, and I learned, and then I came into this, and this is my life. I treasure that above all other things. So you want to take my life? Fine, take it. There is literally nothing I treasure you can take from me. That's Paul's attitude. And it annoys people. It annoys people. We're going to put you in prison. Okay. Can I have a pen? 
I just want to write some letters. Yeah, sure, you can have a pen. All right? You have no idea what you're getting into, but sure, give me, give me a pen. Right? That's Paul's attitude. We'll put you in prison. We'll beat you. Okay. Or are you going to chain me to a person? Yeah, am I allowed to talk to him? Yes. All right, cool. I'll tell him about Jesus. We're, you're going to be in a shipwreck. All right, will I die? No. All right, well, whenever I make land, I'll probably start telling people about Jesus. How could, how could he do that? Because he treasured one thing. He treasured one thing. First of all, he despised sin. And he ran to Jesus for repentance often. And he treasured Christ above all other things. When he preaches that message, it's disruptive. Maybe you're sitting here right now and it feels disruptive to you. It should. It feels disruptive to me. It should feel disruptive to all of us. So that's the message that is being preached. And there's opposition towards it. So as this plot comes to kill Paul, they flee and they go to uh, these the cities of Lystra and Derbe. Now, I'm going to pick up at verse 8. I want you to follow along with me. I'm going to read verse 8 through 18 because there's an interesting interaction here. It's, it's, it's very interesting what happens. So follow along with me. Verse 8 of chapter 14, we're going to read through 18. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now pause. Have we seen this almost identical thing happen before? Yeah. We saw Peter do it at the synagogue, right? We saw Peter do it. Uh, and, And he tells people, in a predominantly Jewish crowd, he tells this man to get up and walk. There's an understanding of God in that place. So the response to Peter was different than the response to Paul. Follow along with me. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker and the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance to the city brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Stop there. They see a powerful demonstration of the Holy Spirit and they equate it to their gods. Why? Because that's their cultural understanding of God. That gives us a sense of who he's preaching truth to. So as he's preaching, God uses him for a powerful sign of the Spirit to happen, and automatically the response is, our gods have come down to earth in the form of men. Let's go get an oxen, and, and we're, going to, we're, we're going to get some oxen, and we're going to, to uh, sacrifice them to our gods. That's what's happening. Verse 14, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, They tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. This is an example of confusing the message with the messenger. This is an example of confusing the message with the messenger. Instead of hearing the message, they identify it to the person delivering the message. They want to praise Paul and Barnabas. They want to offer them this sacrifice. They basically want to feed their ego. And Paul and Barnabas hear this and see this happening. And whether we want to believe it or not, I believe in that moment a choice had to be made. Paul and Barnabas had to make a choice in that moment. Will we become celebrities to the people in Lyconia? I mean, in Lystra. Will we become celebrities to them? Or will we continue to point them to truth? Now, if Paul treasured his reputation, and Paul treasured his earthly value, and Paul treasured what people thought of him above Christ, I believe that he would have chosen to take the praise and let these people believe he was a God. Minimum, it would have been more of a struggle for him. But when he treasures Christ above all things, it doesn't even seem to be a sense of hesitation in him to come in. And don't you think he would have been able to get their attention by running into the crowd and tearing his clothes? I think that would have got their attention. It was a sign of mourning, by the way. It wasn't just an attention getter. I think it would work if I did it right now. I like this shirt, though. But they look at Paul and Barnabas at the end of this, and they say, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. That's in verse 11. And Paul and Barnabas tell them, no, listen, no, we are just men serving a holy God. Listen, this God, even though you don't obey him, has still chosen to give you rain for your crops. This God, who even though you've chosen to walk away from him, has still chosen to give you health and a place to live. That's the God we're talking about. Stop serving these vain gods that have given you nothing. Turn to the God who we who are leaning, the God who gave power to restore this man, the God who, who saved me from my mess, the God who can do it to you, God who's provided rain for your crops and a place to live and a substantial life, even though you haven't obeyed him or lived for him. That is the God you want to serve. Not these gods. And even with that, it says, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Paul and Barnabas don't take the praise, and Satan would have delighted in that, by the way. Satan would have delighted in these men taking the praise of the people. The people worshipped what they wanted to in the end anyway. Here's something that came to mind. As I interacted with pastors this past week, I realized how many of us can carry the weight of making sure that the people we get to communicate truth to automatically make a connection to it and their lives change for it. And if people aren't doing that, then I must be doing a bad job. If lives aren't being transformed by the preaching of God's word, well, then I must be a bad preacher. That's the math. And I think it's a lie. Now, this word is living and active, so if the person delivering it is boring consistently, 
that might be a problem. If we're just reading it and letting somebody else do it, then maybe that's a problem. But when we preach through God's word and we teach God's word and we emphasize God's word, there's a choice to be made by all of us whether we're going to take God at his word and be the people God desires us to be or we're not. And whether or not the people of any local church choose to follow God and obey God wholly or not doesn't change the fact that the minister's call is to preach the word, be faithful to God, love the people, love Jesus first. I look at the life of Jeremiah who got called into ministry for over 40 years and was told at the front end of it, you're going to be faithful to me, you're going to preach the word, you're going to love people, you're going to confront sin. But no one will ever listen to you, like ever. That was Jeremiah's whole ministry. You can read it about it in the book of Jeremiah. You can read his response to it in the book of Lamentations. Literally, a lament of his life. So the weight where we try to be more creative, we try to make this, let's dress it up. And one thing that I was challenged with and one thing that I just has wrecked me over the past five years is we can spend a lot of time trying to make this more beautiful, but the gospel cannot be made more beautiful than it already is. No matter how polished of a speaker I am, no matter how, how trained or eloquent a speaker may or may not be, doesn't make the gospel more beautiful than it already is. So us trying to dress it up, us trying to market it, us trying to get more people to pay attention to it because we're going to make it better, we're going to make it more palatable, we're going to make it easier to digest, whatever words we want to use. We can't make the gospel more beautiful than it already is. But in our efforts to try to make it more beautiful, we can make it come across less beautiful. And Paul and Barnabas have an opportunity right here to make the gospel more beautiful, and they take that road. And there is, there is still a group of people that sacrifice an oxen. There is still a group of people that have a pagan ritual in Paul and Barnabas's honor, by the way. Paul and Barnabas have to step, step aside and watch these people offer a sacrifice to them as gods and still find a way to still push the gospel forward. So Paul tries diligently to keep people's eyes fixed on Jesus. And the people, by the way, look, pick it up in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch. This is while this is happening. Even with these words, verse 18, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Remember them? They were the ones at the first part of the chapter. When it says that, uh, that Jews, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews and their rulers to mistreat them. That's in the first part of the chapter, and that's in Iconium. So these Jews from Antioch and Iconium that we met at the beginning of the chapter that are on a rampage to stone and kill Paul, they've caught up with him in Lystra. And in the midst of him trying to get these people to understand the true gospel, in the midst of a huge victory where this man is, is healed of being crippled, in the midst of all of this where Paul's reeling at the fact that there is a pagan ritual in his honor right now while he's trying to push people to the gospel, all of a sudden out of the corner of his eye come all of these angry Jewish and uh, Gentile people that want to see him dead. And what do they do? Verse 19 and 20. They have persuaded the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, 
he went on with Barnabas to Derby. How beat up from being, having rocks thrown at you do you have to be for the people who did it to believe you to be dead? And they take his battered body and they drag him outside of the city and the disciples gather around him. Now, what do you think they're gathering around him doing? You think they're just standing there going, is he dead? I don't think he's dead. Maybe he's dead. What do you think they're doing? They're most likely eulogizing. They're most likely grieving. They're most likely lamenting. And to their shock and amazement, Paul gets up. And he doesn't say, take me to the hospital. He doesn't say, find me the police. He doesn't say, get me out of here as fast as possible. Where does he go? He rose up and entered the city. He rose up and entered the city. And then the next day, the next day, by the way, now, I'll go for like a four-mile run. Steve and I are running a race in November, so I'm trying to get myself ready for that. And at the end of that, I don't want to do anything the rest of the day. And I'll wake up in the morning, and I'll feel like I get hit by a bus. That's after I chose to go for a run. Not like a clapper 46-day run. I mean just like a four-mile run. Paul just got beat to the point with rocks that everyone thought he was dead. He got up, found his way back into the city, and the next day he gets up and he heads to Derby. I don't know how long that journey is, but in verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. Did you catch that? Where were the people that beat him to death almost from? They were from Iconium and Antioch. That's where he went back to. Listen, this guy's got guts. He's an inspiration for a lot of reasons. But look at what he does in verse 22. When he gets back to the place filled with people that just wanted to see him dead and actually tried to make him dead, if you're a princess bride, fan, anyone seen the movie Princess Bride? He wasn't dead, he was only mostly dead. Uh, he goes back to the place where the people who tried to kill him live and are from, and it says in verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The real work of influence in the life of the church is doing this. The real work of people in the church who take God seriously is to do this work. It's that, it's that we can stand amongst one another and we can stand up and we can look at our fellow brothers and sisters and we can strengthen the souls of the, of the disciples and we can encourage them to continue in the faith and we can say that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. What he's saying is we're not in heaven yet. Life will be hard. If we don't invest in one another... We'll just feel hard by ourselves. We'll feel defeated by ourselves. 
So Paul, maybe walking with a limp now, maybe holding his arm in a sling, maybe having a a black eye or, or, or just marks all over his body from this trauma, is looking at this church and saying, through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. People, we are not in heaven yet. And if we're not in heaven yet, we have work to do. It's not gonna be easy. It's not supposed to be easy. But if we lean into one another, we can at least do this together. That's the message. If we go back to verse 15, I think we have a job description for people in the church that are serving. In verse 15, paired with what we just read, it says this. He looks at them and says, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. The job description is to turn praise back to God and say, no, 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 you've got to, you've got to stay on track. Love Jesus more than you love any of this stuff. You are pursuing idols and these idols have given you nothing. If we're going to lead the charge, that's the kind of message that we need to have. And in verse 27, first of all, in 24, you start to see that he's traveling through these different towns and villages, and he is, uh, he's appointing people to leadership positions. Look at verse 23 when he says, but when, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So he's appointing people to lead these bodies of people that are pursuing Jesus. And he's telling them, look at me. This very well may happen to you. So I'm going to leave. Because just like God had brought me to your town to tell you about Jesus and to get a church established here, he wants me to do that in other places. So you live here. These are your people. Lead them to something eternal. And as I leave, I will continue to fast and pray for you. And if I have time, next time I'm locked up, I'll write you a letter. So he goes to these other towns, and they had done the same thing all throughout Antioch. And in verse 27, after all of that, by the way, verse 27, the end of his first missionary journey, and he says this, and when they, have arri- they arrived and gathered the church together, they're in Antioch again, by the way, They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So when Paul gets together with the disciples, with the followers of Jesus, with the church in Antioch, with the other apostles, what does he immediately tell them about? He doesn't say, dude, they almost killed me. You should have seen it. He doesn't say, man, it was crazy. I said to this guy, get up, who couldn't walk, and he did. He didn't share any of those kinds of stories. He said, you wouldn't believe the amount of doors God has opened to the gospel going into the Gentiles. You wouldn't believe the amount of people that are gathered in Gentile towns that up until a few months or years ago didn't even know who Jesus was and now they love Jesus, they're living towards Jesus and people are faithfully carrying the gospel out. As they gathered, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. He was able to celebrate the right thing because he treasured the right thing. 
You're going to hear that a lot because it's something that's resonating in my heart, and I think it's something we really need to keep in front of us. We need to let that marinate in us often. What do we treasure? If we treasure anything that isn't Jesus, we will live with a sense of fear that it can be taken from us. We will live with a sense of anxiety that at some point in time the bottom will drop out and I will be exposed for the fraud that I am. We will live with an inner anxiety because the thing that we want more than anything in this world will never be given to us because our treasure isn't Jesus. Paul was able to endure everything he endured because he treasured Jesus above all else. And he never once claimed or made the claim or pushed it down to the church that it would be easy. Never once. He actually reminded us often that it would be difficult. So Paul, in the midst of being abused, beaten, thrown rocks at him until he, they thought he was dead, they drag his what seemed to be lifeless body outside of the city, and what he would have been able to do is stand and sing, praise the king. Like we're going to. God, thank you for being a God who hears us, for a God who, who wants to hear our praise, who desires a relationship with his children, who went to crazy far lengths to create a pathway of relationship back to him. God, may we never tire in doing good. May we want to honor you above all things. And may we treasure you more than we treasure anything else. Lord, we love you. Pray, King.